We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. So recently, my four-year-old twins started playing a game called Guess the Animal. And, and we were doing this on our way to daycare, and it was so much fun where you know, they'd look out the window or just randomly think of an animal and they give like just crazy guess. Like someone would shout out a clue and then you, whoever else was in the room or the vehicle would have to guess the animal. So I thought this would be a fun way to introduce this week's topic and play a game that my four-year-olds like to play. But I mean, they, they throw out these clues that are like, how does a four-year-old know this about this animal? And I always lose. I never guess it, but they're they're always right. So I thought I'd throw out some challenges. And Tana, uh, since it's just you and I right now, it looks like you're the only one playing the game with me today. So, oh, boy. Yeah, I, th I have faith in you. Are you ready to play? Okay. Okay. So this animal is found but rarely in two of our states, which actually both Kansas and Nebraska. Oh, no. I heard it's more rarely found in Nebraska than Kansas. It's not a prairie chicken, is it? Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, give me another clue. Okay, okay. Uh, no feathers. We'll, we'll give you that. So Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah you're cold. You're going cold there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking of the smallest native North American canid. And smallest Native American canid. I don't know. Okay. What's this? Can I Google it? Can I <laughs> no Google, Google no it? Google, no Google. Four-year-olds don't know how to Google, so you can't Google either. That's cheating. Uh, okay, well, a coyote would be pretty big. Oh, yeah. North American canid. Um, is it a species of fox? Oh. Are raccoons in the canid you're family? A lot, ooh, you're a lot warmer than you were with the uh, prairie chicken. We'll give you that one. <laughs> so scientists, and I thought this was really cool. I don't know why I thought this was so cool, because I'm not afraid of this smell. Scientists were using skunk-scented petroleum jelly, like Vaseline, to attract this animal for research purposes. But it's not a skunk? It's not a skunk. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. Give me the last clue, okay, Julia. Okay. Okay. I'm telling you, my four-year-olds give me these exact clues. These are good. Oh, they are. I thought so, too. I wanted to stump you. As a graduate student in South Dakota, today's guest spent a lot of time researching this animal. I mean, that's a dead giveaway, right? Oh, my gosh. Julia, are we talking about the swift fox today? Ah, you're good. You're good. <laughs> I'm Yes, I'm glad you did a little um, research before we started today. <laughs> uh huh. Yes, the swift fox. I'm so excited to talk about this animal. And even the clues that I gave right away, I think, are very intriguing. And we have a lot of ears opened up. So we welcome our guest today. Before we start talking about the swift fox, um, we're going to hand the mic over 
to our guest to introduce herself. And our guest is Sarah Nevison, biologist with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. So first off, Sarah, welcome to She Goes Outdoor podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. And before we have you introduce yourself, please announce again the animal that we were just talking about. Yes, the animal was the swift fox. Awesome. Well, I wonder how many of our listeners got that right. You guys, drop us a, a Facebook message if uh, if you got the swift fox from some of those clues right in the beginning that Julia said. As Sarah mentioned, we are talking about the swift fox today. But before we talk about the beautiful, majestic, mysterious swift fox, we want to talk about the beautiful, majestic, maybe mysterious Sarah. So Sarah, if you could introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background, maybe what your role is with Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for letting me be on the podcast today. Very excited about it. I am a biologist with Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. My title is technically natural legacy wildlife biologist. And what that means is I work with the Natural Legacy Project. In Nebraska, that is what we have the name of our state wildlife action plan. So every state, so Kansas included, has a state wildlife action plan, which is how most states manage their non-game species. So usually there's different ways to manage deer and turkey and fish, but for all those other species that usually aren't hunted, so our non-game species, um, you have a state wildlife action plan. So I work with that in Nebraska. We call it the Nebraska Natural Legacy Project. So I help manage, conserve, organize research, organize different types of things for all of our non-game species in Nebraska, including the swift fox. So I'm originally from Minnesota. And I went to school, I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota, and then I had lots of different field jobs. So I always knew I really liked animals, got a degree in wildlife conservation, and I worked in all different states like California, studying California spotted owls. I went down to Texas and I worked with sea turtles. I went to South Dakota and I started to work at Badlands National Park. And that's kind of where I first learned about swift foxes. And I got into grad school. So I was in grad school at South Dakota State University for um, a handful of years, 2014 to 2017. And that is where I just fell in love with the species. I lived, eat, breathe everything swift fox for two years straight in the field and just loved everything about that career that I had, learning all about them, studying them, researching them. And then after graduate school, I moved to Nebraska with my husband, and we are now both biologists. We're excited to have them here in Nebraska. Living the dream. Oh, yeah. We both really love it. We're both very outdoorsy. We bring our daughter outdoors now, too. I just had a daughter earlier this year, and she's always out hiking with us and going to the state parks. And she's, she went ice fishing when she was just a few weeks old, and it was just, it's a blast. I think we have another future biologist in the making. I can only hope, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very excited to hear all about your swift fox research. But first, let's step back. Let's just talk about the physical appearance of a swift fox. Because when I hear fox, like instantly the red fox comes to mind. I think that's probably the most popular fox that we think of. Especially even here in Lincoln, Nebraska, we see them right in the middle of town so many times. But there's a lot of differences in between the two species. 
can you uh, compare maybe the two or tell the difference or just give us a physical appearance so we can have those of us when we're on the podcast that's the bad thing about podcasts is <laughs> we have to create this vision in our in our minds so we we help us do that absolutely yep and kind of basing it off of a red fox is a great place to start most people can envision a red fox in their mind um, it's the the most common fox you would think of they're a reddish orangish color they have black feet black ears big poofy tail so if you kind of have that in your mind i want you to shrink it down Swift foxes are only five pounds, so they're about the size of a house cat, and yet I have a house cat. She's a pretty small cat. She's eight pounds. Oh, wow. So very, very small fox. They do have that small pointy nose, pointy ears, kind of a slender body, but overall they're more of like a yellowish, grayish color, so not quite so reddish orange, more yellow and gray. Their tummy is more white. And the big characteristic, the thing that you always want to notice, is the tip of their tail. So on a red fox, they have a white tip on their tail. And on a swift fox, they have a black tip on the tail. So if you do happen to see a fox running down the road or running through the field when you're hunting, look at the tail. Because if it's black, it might be a swift fox. That's really interesting. Because when I, I think of a fox, I always think of that characteristic big fluffy tail with the white on the end. So that's good tips. Thank you, Sarah. So as we talked about in the clues in the beginning when Julia was quizzing me live on the air, we talked about how the swift fox can be found in Kansas and Nebraska, but more rarely in Nebraska. Is that right, Sarah? Yep, that's correct. So in Nebraska, they are actually listed as a state endangered species. While in Kansas, they do not have that listing. They're actually considered a fur bearer. You can actually legally harvest swift foxes in Kansas. Interesting how just, I mean, we're so close and the borders change. Yep, just one state away. Yeah, well, what about their um, nationwide status, Sarah? Are they listed? Yeah, so nationwide, they are not listed. Um, I should say in the USA. In Canada, they are, because they go all the way from Canada to Texas throughout the Great Plains. And in Canada, they are listed as a threatened species. And then every state has different rankings in the U.S. So Nebraska's is endangered. In South Dakota, they're a threatened species. And then other states have different rules and regulations. Some states like Kansas or Colorado, you can actually legally harvest them. And then in other states, they have some protections. Um, So it really just varies state to state for the species. Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between threatened and endangered for those of us who are new to the terms? Yeah, absolutely. Those are terms I just throw around every day, but I realize I should probably (laughs) explain them a little bit. So federally listed species, that's kind of a whole nother cup of tea. So like in Nebraska, we have the federally endangered whooping crane, for instance. Um, And that means that species is protected. They have a very low number. They're protected because they have so few species. There's usually a lot of rules and regulations about what you can do with that species. So you cannot harass the species. You can't intentionally take hunt, kill the species, and usually their habitat is protected too. So like I said, with whooping cranes, usually we have habitat protections as well, making sure that they have somewhere to go and somewhere to live. 
Now, states can have their own specific listings, so not federally listed. The federal government isn't involved. It's just on a state level. So in Nebraska, we have a handful more species like the swift fox. We have a threatened American burying beetle, different species like that. And so within the state, we say you cannot harvest the species, you cannot kill the species or take the species or trade the species, you know, in the pet trade. And you also have to protect their habitat. You can't intentionally, say, plow through a field and dig up a swift fox burrow because they are protected. That's very interesting. Thank you. So I'm really intrigued now as a Nebraska resident Why here in Nebraska are they threatened or endangered? Yeah, so in Nebraska, they're endangered. Endangered, yeah. And they've been endangered since 1977. Wow, that's a long time. Yep, so I believe that was the first time we actually had species listed under the Nebraska Non-Game and Endangered Species Conservation Act. They were one of the very first species that we listed. I mean, do, do we know why or what kind of, what's the hunch of what led to that? Yeah, so... For for whatever reason, the species was more affected in the northern part of its range than the southern part. So Canada, Montana, the Dakotas, um, Nebraska, and the main causes for their decline. Um, we used to believe there were swift foxes aplenty out on the shortgrass prairie, and we know that because of trapping records. So through the fur trade, we knew how many swift foxes were being trapped, being sold, and where their locations were. We saw a huge decline in the early 1900s, and unfortunately, most of the reason was really unintended. So there was trapping, unregulated harvest, but usually they weren't targeting swift foxes. Because they're so small, uh, most fur harvesters are not getting much money back then or today for a swift fox fur. Usually they were trying to go for wolves or coyotes, and they were unintentionally taking swift foxes as well. Okay. So that paired with habitat conversion. So swift foxes rely on large spanses of flat or slightly rolling short grass prairie. So think of the panhandle of Nebraska, think of the western third of Kansas, even, you know, thinking of eastern Colorado, the Dakotas, that area. They really like that short grass prairie. Where they feel safe. Where they can feel safe because they can see. Exactly. Kind of like the pronghorn. We're going back (laughs) to... Exactly. Wow, connections here. Yep, that's exactly what it is. They can see because they're so small, they want to be able to see. So they live in in short grass prairie, especially in prairie dog towns, actually. Yeah. Which that's another reason. But um, so habitat conversion with um, Europeans coming through, they were tilling up, they were putting row crop agriculture in, highways were dividing up their, their land. And then also we had mentioned prairie dogs. They aren't an obligate species reliant on prairie dogs, but they do really well where there are prairie dogs. Mm-hmm. And over time, we've just lost a lot of our prairie dogs as well. Oftentimes ranchers don't want them on their property, so they try to get rid of prairie dogs. And unintentionally, you're also getting rid of your swift foxes. What, what would happen if here in Nebraska if I happen to I mean, if I'm trapping and I happen to trap one. Yep, you would have to let us know. Yep, so you'd have to get a hold of Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. Hopefully the animal's alive. If it is, I I believe we can let it go. I know you have to let Nebraska Game and Parks law enforcement or biologists know. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, if it's trapped and it's killed, we would confiscate the animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
shoot, I hope that doesn't happen. But yeah, it's very rare. It happens, but incredibly rare. Most trappers really know how to target their main species. Yeah. So they know how to specifically catch a bobcat or specifically target a coyote. And um, incidental take of swift foxes in Nebraska is very, very low. And I think the areas that uh, the trappers are aiming for are probably not the same habitat, typically, as the swift fox either. If yeah, I, I wish I knew more about trapping. Yeah, um, I, not I my, my limited <laughs> knowledge of trapping. But. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think um, oftentimes people are going for larger animals like coyotes, other animals, maybe kind of riverine animals, muskrats, river otters now right. in Nebraska. A different habitat. Yep. Yeah. I really like how you pointed out the use of trapping as a management tool and as a tool to gain information too. And it's interesting, I think, you know, across the U.S., but in the Midwest, especially as we've seen declines in trapper numbers, we are kind of missing out on some of that information. And I know, Sarah, biologists such as yourself, without that data, you might have to find other ways to try to get a handle on population numbers and stuff. So I think that's interesting to talk about the role that trappers can play in some of that data gathering in science. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really important in your state as well, in Kansas. Um, there have been research projects, graduate students and biologists going out and learning about swift foxes in that way. But every year, any swift foxes that are taken legally in Kansas with a permit they have to be tagged. And so therefore, we're able to get a rough estimate of, you know, where these foxes are coming from, how many you have, and you can actually get really good information. Um, Same with Colorado, you have to tag them in Colorado, and you can get a lot of information through trappers. Very cool. So when I think about the swift fox, I'm thinking about some of those threats to the swift fox population. And I'm thinking about natural threats. And like when I think of a red fox, I consider them fairly top of the food chain for this area. But a swift fox being so small, I imagine has some predators out on that short grass prairie. Absolutely. You're bringing up one of my favorite concepts, which is the fact that a swift fox is a meso predator. And I just love my meso predators. That means middle predator, meaning they eat things and things eat them. So they're right in the middle. (laughs) So coyotes, for instance, will attack and kill swift foxes. Coyotes are kind of higher on the food chain. When swift fox pups are very young, owls or golden eagles can also attack and eat them. So they're kind of in the middle. They will eat things. They'll eat birds. They'll eat rabbits. They eat small things, even like grasshoppers. So they are a carnivore. They are a predator, but they're a mesopredator. They're kind of in the middle. Very cool. And you mentioned the pups too. Approximately how many pups does a swift fox have in a litter? Yeah, so it can really vary. My research when I was in South Dakota for graduate school, I actually used a different method to assess that. So usually most people were going out to swift fox dens in the evening, holding up their binoculars and just watching the den for an hour or so and trying to see how many pups were up because they're usually very active in the early morning and in the evening. So they're a crepuscular species. Um, So they'd go out and they would just watch it with binoculars. And to me, that just did not sound like the best way to do it. I felt like we were going to be missing a lot of information. And so I started to put trail cameras up on all of the dens. And we would set the settings pretty light or very sensitive. So anytime a swift fox went by, we took a picture. And my technicians and I would then have to look through hundreds of thousands of (laughs) photographs. But we were able to get pictures of all of the pups. And so I could see anywhere from two to six pups and an average of about four. 
And when I looked back through the research, a lot of the literature said swift foxes had fewer pups, and I found that they had a few more pups. So I actually think that using cameras improved count accuracy. I think it'd be probably so fun just to sit there and watch the, the imagery and have some so video watching fun. them play. Oh, they're such a charismatic species. I mean, they are like little puppies. They really yeah, are. Yeah. They're really playful. They're very curious. They're inquisitive. Sometimes they'd go up to the camera and you get some kind of cute pictures, but they'd roll around and the parents would play with them and clean them and feed them. And just to see all of those photos, I, I had a a folder on my desktop where I would save the cute pictures because some of oh, them were fun. just so adorable. I bet so. I bet so. Oh, how fun. I'm just curious, you know, in Nebraska and other states, we've had relocations. Has there ever been discussion or is that a possibility with this species to be able to relocate? You know, let's say Kansas has a population that, I mean, if they're trapping him, obviously we want to do some Oh, some conservation efforts there. Is there been discussion to be able to relocate some population out of Kansas here to Nebraska? That is such a good question. Relocating swift foxes is a hot topic. It's been done a lot, but it's never been talked about in Nebraska. There have been swift foxes in the panhandle of Nebraska for years and years. We believe we did lose them for a while in the early 1900s, and they kind of re-self-populated. They brought themselves back into the state but in South Dakota, really the only reason we had swift foxes around Badlands National Park, which is where I was doing my research, was because of a relocation. Huh. Same thing with Montana and Canada. So the only reason there's still swift foxes in Canada is because they trapped them, mostly I think in Wyoming and Colorado. Some might have come from Kansas. And then they relocated them into a new area. So that's actually why I was out doing my research, was I was reassessing the reintroduction there were students out there when they first did the reintroduction in the early 2000s. And then I kind of went back to reassess that and see how did it work? Did all the swift foxes stay? Are they healthy? And right before I started my research, a huge epizootic plague, like oh. the black plague, came through. And so they really wanted to know with this new disease, with plague in prairie dog towns, which swift foxes like to hang out in prairie dog towns, is this plague disease going to affect swift foxes? And so they got a graduate student, which was me, and sent me out into the field, and I studied them for about two years to see how that reintroduction was doing. Tina, I think this kind of leads into the next question is, we got to know more about this research project. <laughs> I, th I think we've had a, such a great transition here. Just tell us all about it. and Yeah. Yeah. From start to beginning, <laughs> we got plenty of time here. It sounds so interesting. Well, I could talk about so foxes for hours, so I'll I'll try to um, show you my passion, but try to keep it low because I could really just go on and on. Um, but like I said, so so foxes were native to the Great Plains, Canada to Texas. They were greatly reduced in number in the early 1900s. And then in South Dakota, there was a remnant population which was never extirpated. So one tiny population in the most southwest corner of South Dakota, which is Fall River County. And that's the only places swift foxes survived. Everywhere else in the state of South Dakota, they had been reintroduced. And so they were reintroduced in the early 2000s. Um, I believe it was somewhere between 100 and 200 swift foxes were trapped in Colorado and Wyoming, brought into South Dakota and released. My specific area was around Badlands National Park and Buffalo Gap National Grassland. 
There were graduate students before me that were kind of assessing that reintroduction, seeing if it was successful. For the most part, it was. The swift foxes were staying, they were reproducing, and they thought, wonderful, you know, we kind of did it. We saved the species. And then, like I said, in 2008, plague came through. So this is like the medieval black plague that you're thinking of. It lives in fleas. And fleas tend to live on prairie dogs, and so it can decimate prairie dog populations. You can have a huge prairie dog colony, and if plague comes in, all of them could die. It could completely wipe out the entire prairie dog colony, and that's what was happening in South Dakota. So that's all the background. I started in 2014. I was a graduate student at South Dakota State University, earning my master's degree in wildlife science. And I lived in the field around Badlands National Park, which is southwest South Dakota. And I was doing everything I could to learn all the ins and outs about this population. So the main way I was doing that was I was trapping swift foxes. So we had put out um, large box or cage traps. We would bait them usually with quartered up prairie dog. Um, We would go out, we would check the traps. If we had a swift fox, we would put a collar on the fox. This was a VHF collar, which means I would have to go out with a receiver and listen for the foxes. Sometimes people will put GPS collars on animals, which you can kind of just let the animal go, and every time it bings to a satellite, you'll be able to get information on it. That was not the case. So because swift foxes are so little, we wanted to put little collars on them, and usually that means VHF. So we would collar these foxes, and then I would go out, or my technicians would go out almost every single night, and we would get locations on them. So foxes are crepuscular or nocturnal. So crepuscular meaning dawn and dusk, nocturnal obviously meaning active at night. So I basically lived a nocturnal lifestyle for two years. Um, I would go out in the evenings with a big truck. We had a big antenna on the truck. We would dial in the correct frequency for each fox, and we would figure out where they're at. Oh, cool. Yep, so I was able to do home range information, figure out where they lived. I could figure out if they died, and unfortunately, a lot of them did die. I could also follow them back to their dens, and like I had said before, I could put cameras up on their dens, see how many pups they were having. I could then collar the pups once they were big enough, too. And then one other component was I was taking blood samples, because all of this kind of came back to the fact that there was plague in the population. So we were taking blood samples to see if the swift foxes were being exposed to plague. Turns out, yes, they were, but they didn't die from it. Prairie dogs would die from plague, and for the most part, swift foxes were not dying from plague. Yeah, the prairie dog's not, I mean, they're not that much smaller than, (laughs) sometimes bigger too, so that's very interesting. Yep. So I was out there for two years, learned so much, absolutely loved every single minute of it, came back, had to write my thesis for a whole year, but learned a lot of really good information. In the end, sort of disappointing information that the population wasn't doing as well as we had hoped. Um, When they were first reintroduced and the few years after that, there were so many swift foxes on the landscape. They couldn't even collar them all. There were so many pups, they couldn't even collar them all. And when I left, I believe there were 12 foxes left on the landscape. Yeah, so it was just too bad. We think that plague had a role in that. Coyote numbers had increased. We think that kind of played a role. And then also the weather. So we had already mentioned that swift foxes like really short grass. 
And so if you have a really, really wet year ah. and really tall grass, that's actually going to negatively impact a species like this. Invasive species even, like sweet clover. Sweet clover can really take over range land, and it can be very, very tall. It could be six feet tall. And so so fox isn't going to do well in a habitat with a lot of sweet clover. Unfortunately, I couldn't really pinpoint it down to just one thing, but it was really a culmination of all these yeah. things. And frankly, that's just kind of what biology and ecology are, is yeah. it's everything is intertwined. But unfortunately, the that specific population in South Dakota, not doing the best, there were still other swift foxes throughout the state in, in South Dakota. There was still that one remnant population in the most southwest county. They're still there. We actually think that that population and the Nebraska population kind of uh, coexist together. They can intermingle. Obviously, swift foxes don't know what political boundaries are. <laughs> they don't know that one time, you know, on one side of a road, they're in South Dakota. On the other yeah, side of the road, yeah. they're in Nebraska. But bringing it kind of home here to Nebraska, we do have swift foxes in the most northwest part of our state. Okay. So the swift foxes in South Dakota and Nebraska definitely kind of move back and forth. Yeah. They also move back and forth in Wyoming. And we actually know that because of genetic research that had been done. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't doing that, but there was another graduate student in Nebraska and she was able to do genetic work to say that, yes, there is some intermingling between South Dakota, Nebraska, Wyoming, potentially even Colorado and Kansas because we touch those states, but definitely moving across borders between Wyoming and, and South Dakota. This is so cool. <laughs> so cool. I love it. So Sarah, when I think about like our rangeland, I think often about controlled burns. With the swift fox population, because they need that very specific habitat, are they a species that benefits from controlled burns or does that not really affect them? Such a great question, and it's a question I have myself. Um, the okay. research has never been done to truly see the effect of burning on swift fox occupancy. Um, you would think that prescribed burning and bringing the vegetation back down nice and short would benefit swift foxes. So logically and biologically, it makes sense, but we've never done the research. We don't actually know that. I want to talk a little bit about reintroduction too, because like you mentioned, reintroduction of a species to an area can be a hot button topic. Um, and I think a lot of times when folks outside of the biology realm or the ecology realm think about reintroduction, it's like, hey, we're just going to take a box of swift foxes and dump them out on the prairie and hope that they, you know, sink or swim, buds. But that's not the case at all. And a lot of the times the difference between a successful or unsuccessful reintroduction is actually just, it all comes down to habitat, right? So there's so much that goes into researching those reintroduction efforts. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, Sarah, just real briefly. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you said was really on par. Um, we don't just sort of willy-nilly trap a fox and then say, good luck, buddy, and let him go in South Dakota. <laughs> they actually did more research on it, and they were actually releasing them what we call a soft release. And so they were actually releasing them into a pen. That method has been used with other species. It was actually used for bighorn sheep in Nebraska. They released them first into a pen to kind of get used to the area, and then they would remove the pen. Same thing with the swift fox releases that were done in South Dakota. They, they realized if they just put a swift fox out on the prairie, they would run and run and run and run. They wouldn't know where a good hole would be. They wouldn't know where good habitat was. So first they identified the good habitat, they found holes, usually in prairie dog colonies or other holes that were made, 
and they would actually set up a pen, like a dog kennel, more or less. It was very, it was quite large. They, you know, it was, it wasn't just a few feet. Um, and they would do a soft release. They would put two foxes together, a male and a female. They would put them in this pen with this hole and then wait a little while, wait to make sure that they stayed there. They kind of got used to it. They realized this is a hole. I can stay in this hole. Because I guess we didn't mention, but so foxes live in dens. So they live in holes in the ground year round. They always are reliant on dens. Um, and then after they sort of established, they would then take the pen down. So I had already mentioned they did that with bighorn sheep in Nebraska when they first did reintroductions. And, and there's a lot of science. Uh, it's kind of an art and a science of doing reintroductions. Reintroductions are still being done with swift foxes in the state of Montana. Um, I believe the most recent was at Fort Belknap in Man Montana with the native tribes. They, there might have even have been more recent ones than that, but they were usually doing these soft releases, like I had said, because, I mean, this is a really special creature. They are, do not just come around a dime a dozen. You really have to honor this species and make sure you're doing the best you can to make sure that they're going to establish. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think I read too that a swift fox can have a range of approximately four to five square miles. Is that right? Yeah, you know, it really varies. Um, another great question, because depending on where they live, like what state they're in, it really changes. So mine, I think, averaged about 10 square miles. Someone who's actually my technician, and then she went on to get her own graduate project also studying swift foxes. They had even bigger ranges. Um, I think the smallest I had was two square miles. So it really kind of varies. And I think it varies based on habitat. So if they're in a great habitat, if they have a lot of food, they don't really need to go that far, it could be as small as two square miles. If they really have to forage and find their food, it might be bigger, maybe up to 20 square miles. Okay. And are they more of a solitary, like territorial species, or do they practice more communal living? So swift foxes tend to live in family groups. Um, usually it's a mom, a dad, and the young of the year, so the pups that they have. Usually those pups then disperse in the fall, and it would just be that mated male and female pair, and then they would do it all again the next year. However, there's a lot of evidence um, supporting the fact that they can be polygynous. There can be multiple females. Um, I don't think there is very much evidence for multiple males, um, but there are definitely multiple females. In my research, I actually had two instances where a pup from one year stayed around until the next year and then actually helped raise that litter. So that happened two different times. Both times they were females. So it was sort of like this big sister hanging out and helping to raise the next year's young. And that seems pretty common. In areas where there's really high density of swift foxes, so maybe not Nebraska, maybe not South Dakota, but in some of those areas, perhaps Kansas or Colorado, where it's really, really dense, they might live more tightly, more in family groups. But for the most part, it's mom, dad, and pups, or maybe mom, maybe there's two adult females, maybe there's a sister that's helping out, but it's not super strict, exclusive monogamy. Okay, so I have to know, <laughs> with swift foxes being members of the canid group, mm -hmm. I'm, when I'm thinking of like coyotes, you know, they yip, they howl, they bark. What sounds do swift foxes make? And I won't ask what you to imitate What does the fox them. say? <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, yes. What does the swift fox say? What does the um, fox say? And if you want to imitate them, that's great. 
if you want to sing the song, that's awesome. Or if you want to point us to some resources where we could hear some Swift Fox sounds, that's awesome too. Yeah. So what does the Fox say? The music video that came out by Yilvis came out the year before I started graduate school. So I heard, what does the Fox say about 17,000 times throughout the entire time? People thought it was so funny. And yet I had heard it all the time. But it's a good question. What does the Fox say? In general, they're not super vocal, but for certain reasons, they will be vocal. One of the most unique vocal sounds that they make is called like a vixen scream. And that's something that people hear outside at night and think either A, a woman is being murdered, or B, maybe that's a mountain lion or something maybe a little scarier than a swift fox. But foxes just in general, they will make this really almost blood curdling scream call that maybe we'll actually have to find that we can put it in right here and you can hear what it sounds like (coughs) so people will hear this outside and sometimes get kind of scared get worried about what that sound is usually it's just a fox we actually have red foxes in my neighborhood where i live And we heard it one night and my husband and I, both being biologists, thought it was so cool. And we went outside and we stood in the driveway listening to the yelping fox. And the next day our neighbor came over and said, did you hear that sound last night? And we're like, yeah, we did. They were like, what was that? Was it it a bobcat? And we're like, no, it was a fox. Isn't that cool? And we were just giddy. We thought it was so cool that we heard that fox making the call. And our neighbors were pretty scared about it. They didn't really know what it was. It's kind of an appalling scream. So that's one that you can hear sometimes. Um, People often think it's a mountain lion call because mountain lions can also kind of make a screamy sound as well. Um, I'd say the other two that are pretty common is they'll sort of cackle. So if they're playing and they'll kind of be like a high chippery cackling sound of like pups or parents playing together. Um, And then one that I heard often, I, I didn't hear the foxes make very many noises, but when you get a swift fox in a trap and they're not very happy, they can have what I called like a computer growl because it just sounded really mechanical. Um, and so when they feel kind of threatened, but they're trying to act big and scary, they'll make like a rah, rah. And it's almost cute because they're so little, but they're trying oh to say, gosh. get away. I'm big and scary. Get away from me. But it comes out as a rah. And that's all you'll hear. So I would hear that one. Um, other than that, I actually didn't hear the foxes make very many noises. And there is, I will send you guys, there's a great YouTube video that has like eight different sounds that they make, but some of the ones in there, I'll send that to you. Totally. We will, yeah, we'll put that in our show notes and and plug it in on the Facebook page as well. But they don't go, oh, wow, pow, 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 like the music video would (laughs) make you think. I love animal calls. It's kind of one of my favorite things. I also, um, one of my first wildlife jobs, I was studying California spotted owls in Northern California, and you had to hoot to the owl in order to get them to hoot back. And so I just, I mean, I've been hooting at animals. I've been making all these different calls, always respectfully, never doing it when you shouldn't be doing it. But I just love animal calls. It's really fun, especially bird calls. Interesting. We kind of talk about the population. Is there a particular type of season, like their breeding season, that uh, maybe even that's affected the the population growth? 
Yeah. Um, so they breed pretty normally. So they'll breed kind of late winter into early spring. Pups will be born in like May-ish. Um, they'll stay underground with mom for a few weeks. They'll come up early June-ish. Um, I always got very excited because my birthday is in early June. And when we'd go out and check the cameras, trying to wait to see the first pup come up, it was almost always right on or right before my birthday. Oh, cool. So it was such a fun birthday treat. So that's pretty common with most mammals. And frankly, most species in North America do that, where they'll breed in the winter, have pups in the spring, they kind of help the pups grow, they teach them how to hunt, and then the pups will disperse in the fall, for the most part, is how they do it. Okay, as we wrap up, what information, like you've just been a wealth of information about this, the swift fox. What is like something you haven't told us yet that you just want to share about the species? I think the last thing I'll say is that I loved graduate school and that if if this sort of information, if the idea of being a biologist intrigues you, I really want to say pursue it. I have so many people say, wow, you know, you really followed your dream. You did what you wanted. And I was like, well, yeah, you didn't. You know, I, I knew that this job might not be high pain. I knew this job might move me around to different states, but I just always really loved animals. I always really loved nature. And if that's something that interests you, I just really want to say pursue it. You probably would have to get a master's degree to be a wildlife biologist and have a full-time paying job, but I loved it. I mean, I wish I could almost go back to that time because it was so much fun. Um, I met so many cool people doing research out in the field, being able to just hike around all day or drive in my truck at night. I just really enjoyed that lifestyle. Um, and then collecting data on this species, learning about this species, and then, you know, joining the community. There is a swift fox conservation team that meets every two years from all different states. Even Canada will come down. And that sort of community of all of these people coming together, trying to either save this species or manage this species and manage harvest or reintroductions. I just really love it. So I hopefully my passion kind of came across in this conversation. Absolutely. Um, it did. <laughs> if people have questions, I really clearly love talking about this species, but I also love talking about kind of how I got here, um, if there's any young budding biologists out there. And then the last thing I'll say is what you can do to help swift foxes. So if you live in an area where there are swift foxes and you're a landowner, you can manage your land to make sure there is suitable habitat for swift fox. Usually it's rangeland. How you manage your rangeland can definitely affect swift foxes. They do like shortgrass prairie. They don't like a lot of trees. They don't like necessarily row crop agriculture. But if you have areas of your property that you can either restore or maintain swift fox habitat, that is key. In a state like Nebraska, it's so important because they are an endangered species. We've had multiple researchers. We are constantly, you know, monitoring this species. We want to know as much as we can about it. Now, if you're not a landowner, then what do you do? Um, and the biggest thing I can say is you can actually donate money to the Wildlife Conservation Fund. It was just Giving Tuesday not that long ago. We're recording this just after Thanksgiving. But if you don't have land and you can't be a land manager to try to save swift foxes, you can always donate your money. So you can go to OutdoorNebraska.gov 
slash wildlife conservation fund, and you're welcome to donate money. Um, that money goes to managing or conserving or doing research on all of our non-game species. So it could go to swift foxes, it might go to whooping cranes, it might go to beetles, it might go to blowout penstemon, an endangered flower that we have um, in the sandhills. But if, if anything else, you can always try to donate money or just learn about the species. I truly think that learning about the prairie, learning about um, shortgrass prairie, prairie dogs, learning about ecosystems, and then sharing your knowledge and passion with other people can be really helpful. All good points. Yeah. And one great way to do that is to like, share, and subscribe to the She Goes Outdoors podcast and to share this episode with your friends and family so they can learn a little bit more about the swift fox and meet the wonderful Sarah. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. And love that addition to um, encouraging our listeners to pursue an interest, pursue you know, many times we, we invite biologists that speak in the microphone, but uh, I can imagine that we do have some listeners. They're like, this is a cool career. They have a cool career. In fact, I'm pretty sure all of our guests have had cool careers. And we appreciate that little plug-in to encourage that they follow uh, their dream and, and to, to pursue, whether it's a, a biology degree or something in that field. Because there is a, there's a demand for females, for anyone in the conservation field. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, it has been a pleasure. Um, I think it's safe to say that we might hear from you in the future. We hope you'll come back to the She Goes Outdoors mic and join us again, because your passion and enthusiasm definitely came through. Awesome. Well, I would love to. I'd love to chat with all of you again. Fantastic. And Sarah, before we let you go, I wonder if you could give us the uh, computer bark or growl <laughs> sound one more time. Growl. <laughs> all right, all with that, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you outdoors. <laughs>